0: Zero Hours, katherine Mather. Ow! Zero Hours! Hello and welcome to Zero Hours Podcast with me, Catherine Mather, where I speak to comedians and creatives about the best and worst jobs they've had to do to get by. Today I'm joined by comedian, author, and podcaster Rosie Wilby. How are you doing? I'm okay. Well, we're both melting a bit, aren't we? Because it's a hot evening. (laughs) It's too much, and I frankly think it should be illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Man it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least least we're doing this
0: rather than some
1: very physical work that would be very difficult to do in in this kind of heat.
0: That's Um, true. My heart goes out to the builder's uh, yes. Who are trying to work through this? God bless them.
1: <laughs> yes, bless them. <laughs> it just kind of shows my very middle classness, but I was sort of thinking about, I don't know, like sort of gym class
0: instructors <laughs> or something. <laughs> and those guys too, everyone. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone's effort is worthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I think I've seen that meme where it's like uh it's Homer Simpson and Bart Simpson and they're like it this summer's so hot and they're like no this is the coolest summer of the rest of your life. Oh, <laughs> it's really yeah, well, bleak. Yeah god. Yeah.
1: Yeah it's probably true isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Uh
0: I don't know why I brought it up. I'm sorry. I've <laughs> immediately the world is ending, everyone <laughs> yeah. but still do spend an hour listening to this yeah well you've got nothing better to do yeah. so. limited time left but enjoy <laughs> yeah it's, well you know what just do do what you like and yeah mm. if if you've not yeah. got much time left
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah do what you enjoy i mean mm-hmm. that that is a good philosophy isn't it and mm. i think has been my philosophy and i think a lot of comedians you know have arrived at that because they don't want to do some job that is incredibly dispiriting and, yeah. and demoralizing
0: yeah. particularly when like the choice is like well I could own a house or do what <laughs> yeah. I love well it'd be nice to do both wouldn't it <laughs> it would can you imagine
1: <laughs> my god
0: i heard some people managed to at one point i know yes i think it
1: was a few decades ago yeah
0: i just i was gonna say i wish that i'd moved to london in like the 60s or something but actually i don't think i would want to be 30 in the in the 1960s but uh that's by the by Uh, what's your worst job been well, yeah, I was thinking
1: about this earlier on, and I have done some of the obligatory, you know, kind of summer jobs when you finish school and and uni and that kind of thing, like sort of barmaid and hotel chambermaid and and all of these kind of things, and probably did them very terribly because I didn't ever understand what drinks people were asking for um, and that kind of thing. I've also been a TV runner um, when it was actually a, a um, a shoot with a lot of sex scenes Where it was a closed set So I was actually one of the people Who was just, you know, outside the set Just sort of guarding the set Standing by the tea table eating donuts um, yeah. So it was kind of relentlessly dull, really um, And you wouldn't mind Perhaps if you're being paid a lot But obviously you're not as, a, as just a lowly runner Who, you know, does errands And cleans the toilet Or takes someone's laundry Or goodness knows what um, But... Yeah, the jobs I actually thought were interesting in their badness were the ones that sort of promised much and kind of promised some kind of sense of of glamour and exciting, thrillingness. And I think my least favourite job of all was in the year 2000, when the internet was still in its infancy Mm. I and I was in my um you know kind of mid sort of mid late 20s then and I um, saw an advert for a new internet TV station, TV channel called Network of the World. And it seems bizarre now to think that it was this futuristic thing that there was going to be like telly on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow, I know. And so I went along and did this audition to present some music shows. And the two women who auditioned me were... I think too sort of gay women we had that kind of gaydar thing that connection and I knew a lot about music at the time I'd been working a lot as a music journalist writing for magazines like Time Out and um which actually they've just stopped printing oh RIP Time Out um yeah they just stopped doing a physical issue but they are are continuing online and yeah so and lots of sort of North London newspapers I was their sort of rock and pop critic and you know some fuddy-duddy arts editor would say we do need a young lady to cover that music that they play on the wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, because there do seem to be all these bands playing in Camden. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I used to do a bit of freelance music journalism. So when I got this audition to, to sort of chat about music and bands on a a new internet TV station I thought this sounds great and I got on really well with the women who were auditioning me and so they said yeah we want you to come and work for us and present some of our shows I thought this sounds exciting this sounds glamorous but when I started my three-month contract at Network of the World it Was suddenly clear that there were a lot of male producers who had very different ideas to the sort of cool, groovy queer women producers that I had met. And
0: it's good that's changed now, isn't it? And that isn't the case (laughs) anymore.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) And yes, it turns out that the sort of one of the main producers, was shagging this other presenter that had got through the auditions called Zancy, who was sort of blonde and tall and had big tits and, you know, it was all glamorous. And, you know, I was just sort of quirky and small and just you know I I don't sort of try to be all glamorous and foxy and I just am who I am and I you know I was interested in music and I thought that would be what counted but hey um, (laughs) so yeah it turned out that after I did a few programs where I was styled in a really weird way like clearly the hair and makeup ladies did not know what to do with me to make me look sort of groovy and interesting and they gave me this weird these weird little pixie like um uh, little bun little knots in my hair like i don't know if people remember when bjork first went solo and she first came out as a solo artist after the sugar babes she had this quite quirky hairstyle and it, so it was a little bit like that but i think bjork has got a really beautiful and symmetrical dainty face and lovely beautiful features which i think carries that off I don't think I did carry that off. I was sort of didn't feel that I could say to the hair and makeup ladies, I think I look a bit weird. Mm. And so I was kind of feeling awkward anyway. And it was this weird show because they were trying to find bands that were on the Internet and had music on the Internet, you know, that you could stream and download. And that was still just mostly really weird obscure bands (laughs) you know everyone's web address at the time usually ended in (laughs) .freeserve.co.uk and so it was really sort of archaic ancient times I mean not long before that I'd been working as I say at time out and the music listings used to come in by fax really (laughs) (laughs) I know so yeah it was this weird transitional time I think and so we used to do this chart show and we were running down the charts like the internet music charts on these new music websites not the ones we have now like sort of Bandcamp or whatever but I remember People Sound was one of the uh, big music sites at the time and so we would make a big deal about the sort of people sound charts you know even though actually I mean I got to number one in their charts with one of my singles because really? you, know, you could only you know you only had to sell or uh, a few hundred downloads or something um so it was all rather peculiar and obviously somebody had invested money into setting up this tv station because they had all the gear the cameras and everything like that but it was all a bit odd and nobody really knew what they were doing and so um yeah they they clearly decided I wasn't quite the right face for it because I you know I wasn't shagging one of the producers and I wasn't sort of blonde with with big breasts and all of that kind of thing and so after about a month of my three months of initial contract I got sort of sidelined and they didn't really know what to do with me and so I was then in the production office kind of doing research and sort of finding bands for us to have on and that kind of thing and so it was all a bit odd it was clear they didn't know what to do with me but I thought well I'll you know I'll keep going in for the rest of this contract and then just you know that's it I I don't really want to carry on coming to this place um but it was really odd because I think around that time there were a lot of things starting to shift in sort of workplace landscape and things that now we would probably be more used to and acclimatized to I thought were really weird and I could almost see you know, employees' rights being sort of whittled away and, you know, the, the sort of nasty, evil employer trying to assert some kind of dominance and power and control. Um, and it was the first time I'd experienced the concept of hot desking.
0: Uh, yeah. And
1: uh, yeah. Which sounds
0: so much cooler than it is, doesn't it? Exactly. Wow, it's just hot-desking. kind of...
1: It's really horrible, I think, because I think it's always done a bit like musical chairs, but there actually isn't enough desks. So someone just ends up, you know, I don't know, sitting on the kitchen side or something trying to work. Um, And I I think human beings quite like having their own space. I know people can get ridiculous about their own desk and having all their weird photos and paraphernalia. But, yeah, I thought hot desking was was pretty horrible and awful, particularly as, you know, if you have your own space, you can actually do things like set your chair to the right height and, everybody in this environment was suffering with RSA um, before we actually understood what that was. And everyone was like, oh, my my arm, you know, my hand going up into my forearm. It's really sore, just like there. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, I've got that. (laughs) And and so there were all kinds of problems because no one was used to being fluid and moving around a workspace. And actually, each time you arrive at that workspace to set it up so that you're physically comfortable and you're Mm. not sort of, you know working at a weird angle or in a weird position or posture so everyone was was getting oh. aches and pains and also because they had introduced the idea of sort of more flexible working where instead of you know going in every get, every day you could do fewer days but do a ridiculously long shift a ridiculously yeah. long stint in the office um you know which i guess you know sounded kind of cool didn't it but i think there are a lot of dark sides to that where you know, you're just absolutely shattered because you've done a ridiculously long shift. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of found it a really interesting environment. And one thing that I apparently did towards the end of my contract, which I had completely forgotten about, but I was communicating on Facebook recently with a woman who I became friends with, with there so you know over 20 years ago and she remembered this one time she was like Rosie you have done the most kind of rock and roll thing in the workplace that I've ever seen and I was like really what did I do and she remembered and I do sort of remember this that one day I just got up on the table in the crowded office with everyone sort of cramming into their Minuscule hot desking spaces, and said, "I hate this place," and (laughs) just sort of shouted like I was going to make some, you know, longer speech. But I think it was just pretty much that. And and (laughs) then just need you to know. (laughs) Just need you to know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it was a dramatic time in my life because I had also during the time that I was there experienced um, this really stressful situation where my girlfriend and I had once come home from one of these long stints. I mean, she worked somewhere else but, but often worked late as well and found that our, we'd had a really serious fire at our flat and this was kind of our first proper grown-up flat it was our first proper grown-up relationship and kind of moving in together and trying to live together in Finsbury Park in London and you know having fun party times with all our friends and um, we were just renting it wasn't our flat but obviously we had all our stuff in there and we came home one evening to find the fire brigade boarded it up and there was just a sort of jaunty little post-it note saying see you in the morning with a number we were supposed to call and we were like oh my god what what has happened yeah (laughs) Um, what did happen well uh, yeah i mean our, our home had literally gone up in smoke um we I think had left a candle burning on the highly flammable bookcase and uh, wow. near to the highly flammable furniture cheap furniture that the landlord had furnished the yeah. flat with <laughs> That'll do and it. so yeah I know um, interestingly though I think because he felt bad about the highly flammable furniture we did get our deposit back
0: oh, okay <laughs> that is incredible <laughs> It's a bonus, nice, isn't it? To walk <laughs> out of a shell of a house.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was, I mean, it was horrible horrific. It was like going oh, yeah. into a dark, dank cave, all the window. It was a basement flat, so it, it was on the dark side anyway, but that all the windows were sort of blacked out with soot. And because I was also doing creating my own music at the time and gigging a bit as a musician, and that was kind of what I really wanted. To to do although you know this lock of sort of presenting music shows on telly <laughs> even if it was on the internet and at that time probably only watched by about five people you know that all sounded quite groovy and fun as well but all my musical instruments were all sort of melted, um, melted and molten into like weird shapes and because heat rises of course my guitars would be on the guitar stands and they would look quite normal until the you know the top bit the the head of the guitar the top of the neck and it would suddenly be all twisted round and bent over and drooping down like like weird kind of um I, well I, I'm thinking stalactites or stalagmites. which ones I yeah, can't remember which were. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: I don't know let's say icicles um, yes. and also the um the keys on my keyboard were all kind of drooping down like sort of molten cheese kind of yeah. dripping off a pizza onto the oven floor um and so yeah all our stuff was was ruined all our clothes were all stinking and and kind of black and horrible and our friends actually went around the backs of their wardrobes to find old things that they didn't need anymore that they could give to me and my girlfriend for us to wear so we had some pants and t-shirts and essentials and one friend had even popped her brownie uniform in the bag
0: oh that's kind (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) did either of you wear it or
1: no no yeah I mean she didn't have any good badges so I thought well I you know I don't I don't want to sort of people think that I only passed you know I don't even know what brownie badges were back then so there's
0: a crayon in one
1: yeah balancing on a biscuit tin or something
0: (laughs) (laughs) wow that's what so how did you like how do you rebuild after that and also how do you forget that you jumped onto a desk and shouted i hate it here
1: i don't know <laughs> well probably because i was always doing kind of that kind of thing
0: yeah.
1: um at gig, jobs that <laughs> i, I hated, hate it but here
0: you... and i hate it here and i hate it here <laughs> alex my friend didn't really
1: remember it it was like you know really emblazoned into her brain she she carried it with her as this sort of moment of inspiration of authenticity and expression <laughs> um but yeah so I think I think when I did get up and shout that it was in the aftermath, in the few days after the fire. And I was there in, you know, all the clothes and weird reject brownie uniforms and things that that people had given me. And so I felt just all at at sea and not myself. And I was trying to go in and do this boring, weird job of sort of browsing the internet for bands that might want to come on a weird and obscure internet TV channel. Um, for, you know, like 10 hours a day for not much money or something. And, yeah, I didn't feel that anyone was hearing me, that I'd had this really stressful experience happen to me. And it, what was interesting, though, after that, there was a, an HR woman who came to have a chat with me, and I thought, oh, gosh, she's going to march me out of the building. That's it, you know? Yeah. And I thought, well, if you're going to go, go you know in in style but broken. actually what I would say even though a lot of the people at that company were absolute wankers and were horrible people this particular woman and I wish I could remember her name but I'm afraid I don't because it's such a long time ago she said okay and and she kind of understood why I was in a bit of state and the next day she came and brought me this um, bag of all sort of lovely um, kind of uh, you know, bath foams and kind of clean, you know, sort of nice scenty, cleany things. Because I think she got the vibe that, you know, when you're, you've been sorting through all, all your old possessions and your fingers are stained with soot, actually the thought of just being nice and clean and smelling fresh is, and sort of having that revival of of refreshing yourself in that way yeah. is quite welcome and, and quite lovely. So, so that was a sweet. Yeah, that was a sweet gesture. So I suppose that was one little moment of kindness that did stop me completely losing losing it in this place that I was not enjoying
0: working. Yeah. <laughs> That's really insightful as well of her, isn't it? To think about, you know, what you might actually need. Yeah. There.
1: Yeah, really, yeah, really sweet, yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. <laughs> People shit on HR, and I don't think they're always that bad. No, no, she she
1: was she was a good one. Yeah, good egg. So I, I, I'm sorry, HR woman, that I can't remember your name. But thank you. <laughs> it was a sweet touch.
0: I hope she's listening. I <laughs> yes. doubt it. But I, I, I kind of doubt it. it. Would be
1: quite random if she was, wouldn't it?
0: But I have remembered. I have remembered. <laughs> So then how do you go about, so was it the sort of workplace environment or was it the job that made it the worst or was it sort of what was going on in life as well?
1: I think it was a bit the workplace environment because that was where I first was exposed to a sort of I guess a kind of toxic masculinity and a, a kind of toxic ego, confidence, you know, extrovert kind of showy, offy personality, you know, among, you know, the young guys that were presenting some of these programs the guys who were producing because I guess with a new venture like that it's going to be people who are starting out in a media career and think it's going to be the stepping stone to you know other much more established platforms and networks and so it was a lot of people you know trying to get on and trying to move forward and you know unfortunately that sort of media and tele world can attract some of those kind of kind of people, um, and yeah, you know, I've also worked in the music business where, you know, it sometimes was. I mean, I didn't do a lot of drugs. Very occasionally, I I did and enjoyed it, and it's lots of fun, but. Um, sometimes it was easier when someone said, do you want some cocaine? And I've been handed cocaine and gone off to the toilets with it and decided I don't want to take any on that occasion, but it's actually much easier to go to the toilets with cocaine and come back again rather than say, no, I don't want to, because I just thought that's too complicated to explain. So there was like this real druggy culture around sort of work in the music industry and TV and media industries um, at that time. So obviously people on coke are, you know, um souped up
0: wank or something. It doesn't make you the best person. It oh, doesn't make you the best version of yourself. <laughs> of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Not not to have to work with. Yeah,
1: and no, I think so. It's It doesn't make you probably the most empathetic or collaborative. <laughs> it's more pushing your way to the front and pushing your way forward. And it was very much that kind of atmosphere and environment. And even though, you know, I've ended up doing comedy and, and something that I think people assume means that you have a certain self- belief or confidence or extroversion actually tons of comedians are really quite introverted and are quite complex characters so you know I think I certainly then when I was younger was really a bit shy and introverted and I wanted to be given a space to be able to talk about things that I was passionate about and interested in and I guess you know ultimately i found that that was more in writing and I, I did a lot of kind of music journalism and wrote about music for magazines and that was probably easier to express myself in that way rather than you know shouting at uh, production meetings and and sort of trying to be all show offy and have this kind of presence on camera
0: yeah <laughs> so you said that you're a musician as well. Were you sort of performing music whilst you were writing about it? And how did that yeah. kind of feel doing doing both of those things? It's sort yeah. of like being a comedian yeah. and a, a comedy reviewer sort of yeah. thing. Yeah,
1: it was weird, actually, um, because sometimes you um so I've I've also done music PR music publicity as well so the other side of the sort of journalism you know you're the person trying to get journalists to write about things and that was really weird because it was sort of like this company where it was a bit like absolutely fabulous and our boss (laughs) was uh, often a bit off the tits and uh was quite eccentric and it, it I mean it sounds fun but it was actually really stressful because You know, she was, she could be a really generous and lovely boss, but then there were moments where she was just so chaotic in her mind and in her psychology. And suddenly there was a big stress about have you done something or have you done this? Have we met this deadline? Have we got, you know, this piece in the times or, you know, suddenly it was all stressful and manic when you know she'd been lovely a second ago it's like you know sort of keeping up with the you know the sort of change in moods um was sometimes quite quite complex and difficult and because it was an office of all women of course we all would sync up in our periods (laughs) (laughs) you know someone would come in one morning looking all stroppy and plonk a big massive box of tampacks on the on the table in the middle of the office
0: and, oh um, no <laughs> yeah
1: it's like oh god are we all doing on well? oh hell um but yeah it was really weird kind of writing about something and also creating it because of course particularly when I was doing music PR um and I've worked at a couple of different music publicity companies where we've promoted some brilliant bands but also some really really rubbish ones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to sound sincere about them, which is really bad. Yeah. And I have done some freelance music PR on my own, but I vowed to myself, I would only ever do artists that I really genuinely believe in and think are great. Ironically, they tend to be the people with no money whatsoever. <laughs> That's
0: which is the problem, sad. isn't it? I
1: know. Oh God. But, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, sometimes you could feel resentful because you would think, well, how, how the heck, As this person got a record label investing money in them? They can't write songs. They can't sing. They can't perform live. What's going on? Um, You know, and you're trying to promote them. And, I mean, sometimes I remember one time there was a journalist um, from The Guardian that I really liked, um, Caroline Sullivan, and we were having a drink together at this gig. She wasn't enjoying it. And I think I just said, it's fine if you write a bad review. <laughs> I don't mind, yeah, yeah. and I'm supposed to be convincing her and saying, "No, no, have more, have more drinks, and you'll like it then." And I'm like, I get it. You know, you, you have to say what you, you know, you've got to be honest. I mean, you know, because yeah. I'd also been a journalist, and I respect that journalists have got it. You know, you've got a brain. You're not going to be somehow fooled by a PR who is bribing you with booze and drugs, and and go, oh, five stars. <laughs>
0: And you have to like maintain a little bit of moral, like personal yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. integrity, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, indeed.
0: But yeah, it
1: was uh, yeah, it was a strange time. it was I think the world was changing a lot. and so when I was doing music PR um at this company, it was I think it was just the last days of music PR companies getting like massive retainers from record labels for really not doing that much. And, you know, it was starting to all change and and record labels were suddenly like, Oh, we'll, we'll only give you a tiny bit of money. And we have massive expectations that you're going to get us on the cover of Q magazine or, you know, well, that Q magazine doesn't even exist now, but that was, that was kind of one of the big things, um, you know, 20 years ago being on, being in Q. So yeah, um, it was. The, I think the world was really, really changing during the years that I sort of emerged into the workplace, sort of, you know, from kind of mid late 90s into the early noughties. Uh, you know, it really was <laughs> the change of the millennium, uh, quite literally. And yeah, I think I was sort of imbued with some of the values I'd grown up with that you kind of, you know, if you did something, well, and to a high quality and a high standard, and you did it diligently, you would get paid for it. You would, even if it was, you know, maybe we early on in your career and you were a trainee or an apprentice, you would get rewarded for working hard and doing it properly and doing it thoroughly. Whereas, of course, now we have, you know, all these unpaid internships, and you know, oh, yeah. why don't you just do this for the exposure, for the experience? And that just wasn't a thing when I first emerged into the workplace. So I have found it quite, you know, frustrating and annoying to see the way things have gone. And, you know, you don't always feel you've got a lot of control over changing it. But I, as much as possible, I do try to speak up, Um, you know, obviously now, primarily, although I still do lots of live comedy, that sort of my main thing has been writing two books and and doing my own podcast. But I think in the publishing industry, the way that authors get rewarded is so weird, um, you know, and so arbitrary and so riddled with prejudice and unconscious bias. And it's bound to reward sort of white, straight, posh, authors really um who are going to have rich networks of privileged people who can buy who can afford to buy their hardback on the day that it comes out when it's you know at the full price rather than you know some of my friends were sort of waiting for my paperback to come out when it's a bit cheaper or waiting for the hardback to be reduced slightly on amazon um as as amazon tend to do you know after it's been out a few months um you know, so if you've got people who've been out of work because of pandemics or lockdown, or people who are out of work because they're trans and don't sort of present in in the way that you know uh, normal employer you know employers kind of expect you know someone to present in a gender kind of way, and um, you know there are tons of my kind of friends who yeah who who are not sort of financially well off for all kinds of reasons particularly over the last couple of years or so yeah. and so i do find it annoying that essentially authors are paid based on well not only how many books they sell but how many books the publisher predicts that somebody is going to sell
0: Jeez, when they so it's not even there's no how do they work that out what's the well they they, they
1: decide to pay you an advance yeah. um for like you know sitting down and writing your book and yeah it does seem crazy arbitrary um you know and yeah I mean obviously some of the people that you read about who get like you know some six or seven figure advance sometimes those people write great books sometimes they don't (laughs) (laughs) and you know I I know tons and tons of authors who've barely been paid any money at all or even authors who self-published and actually funded it all themselves and designed their own cover and got it printed themselves you know you've written really really great books and I don't know it just seems a a really archaic and slow and weird system and it doesn't really take into account certainly kind of minority voices and and that kind of thing so Mm, yeah I think it's all quite tricky and you know I I love writing and I would like to write more books but I definitely think the ways that creatives are rewarded for their work are are very (laughs) dubious
0: (laughs) yeah it'd be nice if there was some kind of payment system wouldn't it where they keep an eye on it you know like um, and make sure you get paid properly
1: well, I almost think, I almost think right, like, it shouldn't just be, and I say this about about any any kind of art form. It shouldn't just be about the number of people who buy something. Because sometimes people just buy something because they're sort of supposed to, and they never actually read it or engage with it. It's just supposed to be on the shelf because that's the cool thing to have, right? Whereas Some people read a book and they like read it many, many times. They put little post-it notes in all their favorite pages. They underline paragraphs, They write notes in the margin. They fold the pages over corners of pages they want to read again because it maybe helps them think about a particular something that they're dealing with. And they maybe read it in bed at night or when they wake up in the morning. And, you know, some people really engage with a book or with a piece mm. of art, with a live show, with a, with a particular comedian or comedy show. And there's something about that quality of en- engagement, which is not evaluated or measured by these crude, you know, commercial measures that we have of, of evaluation. Yeah.
0: Sometimes
1: it's not just about numbers, it's about quality of that engagement and that experience.
0: Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that before, but that's a very good point. I think it, well, I guess it's capitalism, isn't it? That well, really <laughs> it is, isn't it? Take into account uh, the the quality, just the, the quantity.
1: Yeah, right. that's true, yes.
0: So how did you find, how, like, so you, you were writing uh, sort of article uh, type thing. How did you sort of find getting into, well, how, how did you get your ideas for your, your books? What, what sort of took you? Because I know that they're sort of about relationships, aren't they? So how, what sort of took you there? And then how different was it as well, like going from journalism to sort of authorhood?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I actually had a long gap where I wasn't really writing or not writing in a journalism a sense or articles or stories or anything like that but I, I suppose I was writing for performance and when I started comedy I was writing my set and writing for the stage although I think that's very different because I don't know about you but I don't tend to write my set down you know yeah. it's just sort of keywords and prompts and then you as you rehearse something and you, you sort of say it over and over and many times at various gigs it becomes honed and you have a scripted way to a point of saying something and you you know it well enough to be able to ad-lib and go off on a tangent or and come back um but it's never really kind of written down in stone in that kind of scripted sense um so yeah for a long while I wasn't writing in that sense um but yeah I did start writing these shows about love and relationships, Um, a trilogy which began with one called The Science of Sex, which was a sort of spoofy, subversive sex ed lesson with me as a kind of, you know, the dotty biology mistress and kind of the the sex ed lesson that I wish we'd all had when we were younger. Um, And then I did a show called Is Monogamy Dead, which became my first book, and then a show about breakups, um, which eventually inspired my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, and the new book. So. I guess you know it's it's interesting that through comedy, which I you know wasn't sure could become any sort of real job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as we said, some people make you know a ton of money from it and are on telly and have bought big mansions and that kind of thing, um, but. I never thought of myself maybe as a TV comic, perhaps because of my (laughs) experience (laughs) with rudimentary internet TV 20 years ago. Um, But I suppose I did want to have a little bit of a a niche, a specialist subject that I could then, you know, exploit and and explore and, and be really interested and engaged with and explore in serious ways as well as the funny ways so you know interviewing a lot of academics and experts psychotherapists and people whose job it is to actually really deeply understand how the brain works when we fall in love or lust or out of love um so to sort of start understanding all of that kind of stuff and making some kind of job out of being you know the Funny woman who talks about love and relationships, but with a really informed sense of the science and sociology and psychology behind that. So I think to some extent, when we're creatives, we start we kind of invent our own job and our own role a bit. And yeah, so I kind of found this niche of you know doing this podcast, the breakup monologues, and and the book. And so Radio Four. Last time I was on um, Saturday Live on on Radio Four, they uh, christened me the queen of breakups that was what Aww. they called me in their blurb
0: It <laughs> <That laughs> <thought>, sounds good <laughs> and bad like you... <laughs> exactly
1: exactly it's like well yeah that sounds great to be sort of royalty and to be you know somehow conquering breakups and to be you know uh, a figurehead of them but also if you're you know really good at breakups does that mean you're just really bad at making relationship choices <laughs> in the first place
0: Maybe. But it also sounds like you're causing people to break up. (laughs)
1: Oh, I see. Well, I I mean, who knows? (laughs) I could be.
0: Yeah. But I think sometimes that's for the best, isn't it? Sometimes you just need a little push yeah well that's
1: it I mean I'm quite I'm I mean I shouldn't really say this because I've just got married and I guess my (laughs) sort of my message now is that you know look at me I've had millions of breakups in in my life and it you know it took me till I was 46 to meet somebody that I thought yeah this is (laughs) the right one and I really definitely want to try and make this work and you know and when we have got married and and that's all lovely um But, you know, I think actually the journey of having all those breakups and and also, you know, professional breakups and and jobs that you dump or that dump you, you know, that's a similar kind of energy and a similar kind of journey. And, you know, you have to go away and reinvent yourself. I think that that whole process is such a healthy and learning kind of process, a process of active growth and active self-reflection that I think it's it's really good and I do think that you can have better relationships if you've had breakups and been able to recover from them. I mean, I guess yeah. that's the crucial part if you, you know, yeah. if you're still sort of wallowing and listening to sad songs, maybe. Oh, Miss yeah.
0: Havish, am it? <laughs> yeah. Get out the house. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I think it's really healthy to
1: have some adversity and, and learn from that. Um, I'm, I'm always suspicious of the people who've never had a breakup or never got fired or you know or anything yeah.
0: like that. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Yeah, weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. I think it's really sad that it's kind of drummed into you from like I don't know Disney and everything. Yeah. You know, from such an early age, it's like a successful relationship is one that lasts forever so if it lasts forever but you're unhappy then that's awful whereas if it lasts for as long as it's meant to last and then you leave it when you stop being happy then that's that's successful in life yeah that's very
1: successful yeah I mean surely if you stay together unhappy for a long time it just shows how how bad you are at communicating your discomfort
0: (laughs) yeah I I think it's weird that that's just seen as well i think it's nice that people aren't um it, it's not normality anymore is it people when they always say oh the divorce rates are going up you know good Means people are happier <laughs> you know they, they're leaving things that are making them unhappy
1: yeah i think there's a balance isn't there because you you know i think i was a bit addicted to breakups. <laughs> i i kind of so love the you know the process of reinvention and putting yourself back together afterwards yeah. That I, I, you know, almost found myself looking forward to that bit.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you go into things and like knowing that it wasn't going to work, being like, yeah, I can never break up. Or was there always hope <laughs> at the beginning? Yeah. I, I
1: mean, yeah, sometimes there, w- there would be, yeah, a kind of sense of hope. Um, And then I would be like, no, I'm definitely leaving this. Can't wait. But then somehow, like some people would do this trick where I would try and break up with them, but they would be like, no. And they would be like really upset and really like, her and I'd be like oh, okay and they'd be begging me to give them a second chance and I would what a fall and yeah. so then when I was really trying to invest in rebuilding the relationship and the trust and okay yes let's let's give this another go because clearly you do love me even much more than I thought because you know your response to me trying to leave was was so extreme and and so surprised me that you know actually you seem to really want this so let's let's give it a go and you know and then they would turn around and be like oh no no and it's like yeah. oh, hang on what's happened what's going on um yeah so I, th- I think that's that's it's such a peculiar human dynamic isn't it that we don't want to be rejected we feel much more comfortable with being in control and and doing the rejecting
0: yeah, being if reject, it's going yeah. to
1: happen, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's always easy, sometimes it's very painful if you know you're going mm. to upset somebody and hurt somebody and they're going to stalk you.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's, um, it again, that's sad that the person doing the break it up is always like seen societally as like the bad guy. Well, it's equally as bad, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah, if oh god, that. yeah, yeah, if not worse
1: I talk a lot in the book about the sort of binaries that we have around the good and bad person and how toxic they are because it, yeah, it's so complicated and we really demonize affairs and cheating and I think the deceit around affairs you know can be really terrible and I just think come on you know how long have you been hiding this and lying but I do think I'm kind of a bit you know pragmatic about affairs I do think As human beings, it's perfectly natural to be attracted to somebody else. Whether you act on it is is another thing, but I think we do fancy other people sometimes, get over it. You know, that that's totally normal. And sometimes we flirt with other people and sometimes something happens. And, you know, that might mean that you need to leave your relationship and you want to begin a new relationship, or it it might be a catalyst for you needing to, to have some time single and being on your own for a while, but it's perfectly normal to you know feel attracted to more than one person i do think that's fine but you've got to talk about it and talk about what that means for whatever situation you're in at the time
0: yeah that's um a good point i think yeah
1: (laughs) so (laughs) uh, it's interesting we've gone on to relationships because of course that kind of is my job now to talk about relationships in you know, various guises as both a comedian and a more, sometimes a more serious speaker and broadcaster and podcaster and writer and, and all that kind of stuff. But I do think there's so many parallels between, like, our, our romantic, sexual, platonic friendships and relationships and our workplace relationships. You know, they have beginnings and endings as well. And I have a chapter in the book about professional breakups yeah. and professional endings and how... You know how complicated they are, especially you know when you've got to sort of work out notice somewhere or something. It's a bit like those awkward times when you're still living in the same house as an ex because you can't neither of you can afford to move somewhere else just yet. (laughs) You know you've got to navigate and negotiate around all that.
0: Yeah, and the the people that you think that you're going to see, but oh yeah, we'll keep in touch. And then the second you're out the door, (laughs) it's like they're dead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's true, isn't it?
0: So, at what point um, did comedy come into your kind of work journey, and was it something that you thought that you were going to do all the like professionally, or was it just a bit of fun, or how did that happen? Um, it
1: was a real surprise to me because I was quite serious about my music mm. in in the nineteen nineties. And I did release my album um, in 2000. I've I've had one album out, and uh, it is on uh, Spotify. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Look
1: it up. (laughs) I mean, it's so old. Um, But, yeah, it's okay. And... Yeah, so I mean, it was just out on my own label, but at the time it was in the shops. I got a distribution deal, so it was in like Virgin and HMV and all those shops and everything. And mm-hmm. had some nice reviews and press. And I used to gig around and with my with my band. I mean, and that that was, I guess, the real catalyst. Well, there are all kinds of catalysts, but one of them, one of the catalysts for moving from music to comedy was that I didn't really like performing as a musician on my own. I loved having the big sound of a band. I liked having a drummer and guitarist and a bass player. And sometimes um, my girlfriend and a couple of friends would come and sing backing vocals and we would make these really lovely vocal arrangements to the songs and I loved that I absolutely loved that and arranging the songs and you know occasionally we'd do these bigger shows with extra musicians a saxophone player a cellist Um, and it it was really wicked it's brilliant and um, I know one time with the um, bigger extended lineup we uh, supported Tony Hadley of Spandau Valley cool. in the uh, Spiegel tent on Highbury Fields, but he was a bit precious and uh, sent us all out during his sound check oh. so mm, there we are <laughs> but um Yeah, I think having to rely on all those other people to show up and not be too stoned to play in time (laughs) or in tune.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of people to coordinate, right? Yeah,
1: Um, it was tricky. And also just financially, you know, if you get paid for a gig and you realise, oh, hell, you know. (laughs)
0: there's 12 of us
1: no (laughs) crikey that's a a, lots of people to split it with um so it suddenly did become more appealing to do something that I felt comfortable doing my on my own on a stage and it did feel very raw and exposing and naked in comparison but I felt no desire ever to do musical comedy because I guess music was quite a serious thing for me like my songs were kind of heartfelt and emotional and even though I did start dipping my toes into comedy by chatting between the songs and being all self-deprecating about my sort of (laughs) miserable and bleak lyrics or whatever. Um, I think that, yeah, somehow comedy, I wanted to sort of just do something fresh and new and, and try something completely different. But it was also this weird time of change, you know, in the in the early noughties after all these weird job experiences, and um, you know the house fire and the loss of all my musical instruments, and actually around a similar time, I lost my mum, which is the most significant of all these losses. Um, and I just think there was a lot going on, and it was also the time that I transitioned from being in my twenties to being in my thirties. And you do sort of suddenly look at what you're doing in your life and make choices and sort of start to think. Not that necessarily choosing to do comedy was sort of, a you know, a grown-up decision. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but... <laughs> it was a decision. <laughs> it was a decision. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I just saw more potential in it for... Doing well, I what I do think is good about comedy is you can do loads of gigs. Whereas, if you were a musician in London in that sort of late 90s, early noughties era, all the promoters that booked the gigs were like, Oh, well, you can't do another gig within a sort of whatever mile radius, two weeks either side. Well, because you were supposed to, the onus was on you as the band, as the artist to bring the audience. You were supposed to bring your fans and your following along. Whereas I think in comedy, generally the promoter sort of feels it's their role, it's their job to Mm. make sure there are bums on seats to see the comedians they book. And they obviously try and book comedians that will entertain the type of audience that come to their gig it was a very different vibe in music so it was hard to actually gig with real regularity unless you went off on a tour traveling around but that was sometimes quite difficult to coordinate particularly if you did have other kind of part time jobs to sort of pay the bills and that kind of thing yeah um so comedy felt a bit more liberating and free because you could i'd never been one to sort of do like, you know, three gigs a night or anything. But, yeah, sometimes you could go to Bristol and double up, you know, you could open one place and close, you know, over the other side of town or, or whatever, or you could go on a little mini tour. And, yeah, nobody was like, oh, yeah, oh, we can't have you here if you did there the other night. And, yeah, yeah. there the just seemed more possibility to, you know, get time on stage and, and hone your craft, which was actually quite quite tricky with music.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It's everything about doing music sounds harder to get where you are. Whereas with with comedy, it feels more like it's um more maybe a bit more self guided in that you, you can go out and just do do what you're gonna do, and all success and failure is your own. Yeah, although I
1: do, I do think we can't get too I. Idealistic about, you know. I think there's this sense, and I, I hear a lot of sort of white cis male comics saying comedy is a meritocracy, mm-hmm. and I think nothing is a meritocracy. No, Come no. on now, <laughs> it Please. might feel like a meritocracy if you're a heterosexual male, young, white, good-looking dude, mm. um, you know. <laughs> but actually, it's very different if you're, you know, middle-aged lesbian, or you know, or working class, or, you know, or all kinds of, you know, other sort of minority voices and groups in society who yeah audiences might not respond to in the same way there's just this bias isn't there this unconscious bias that the the person they're supposed to laugh at the most is the young white straight dude who's talking about wanking or whatever
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) and they don't have to respect anyone else (laughs) it's frustrating um yeah, that's true. I, I mean, mean as well. look, it's it's
1: changing. There's lots of great yeah, you know, lots of great acts now, lots of great promoters, lots of great clubs out there. So things are changing, but it's it's really interesting. There's still so many nights where it feels it feels quite old school.
0: Yeah, it takes a lot of time, doesn't it? I think I remember the last gig that we did was in South End. Oh, it was the International Women's Day one. And I know the, the promoter, Ross, who has also yeah. been on this podcast, uh, leaning over and he just, because you, you were emceeing. I he, was. He leaned over and he was just like, it isn't until you do an event where it's like all women that you realise, I can't remember how he phrased it, but it was like, you realise that men really are cunts, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> like, not all banter has to be nasty like we there was banter but it wasn't like and you're a dick and you look awful and (laughs) and and I bet you're bad in bed it was like just not like we could take the piss and be nice it's okay it was a really lovely night that wasn't it it was a really nice
1: vibe I really enjoyed that really sweet venue and everyone seemed to have a really lovely gig
0: yeah we had the best time it was great we're and related. then he did. And then you goes to the ones that are all men. And it's just like it's just can be such a toxic environment in a green room. Oh God. Oh God, it really can, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? What is wrong with you people? Okay. Well, I guess it's um maybe not them exactly, but it's all yeah. what we brought up. I recently. don't I mean, the thing is,
1: there are so many Male comics that I really like and think are really ace and really excellent human beings. But sometimes it's the collective energy, like you say, when there's four or five of them that I really like individually. And when they all start chatting in the green room, I think, oh, there's sort of a weird thing going on that I don't really I, yeah, it's yeah. weird, isn't
0: it? It can be quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> But, um yeah, it's nice to know that things are going in a in a better direction God, yeah. yeah i think
1: I think it's really really healthy times you know mm. where where we do see a lot of pro- progress in the world in, in general um you know and yeah i think I think it's kind of interesting I've sort of been chatting a bit on um i just uh, recorded some shows for um for Virgin Radio Pride, actually. They they have a sort of Pride pop-up station, and we are chatting about whether you still need kind of queer cultural spaces or whether that's a kind of form of segregation, you know, a bit like, you know, us having the all-female night. But I think until you have those spaces, you can't really recognise and celebrate what goes on where you have that particular space for those acts to be completely authentic and comfortable And free to sort of maybe talk about things they don't always talk about at the I don't know the you know the really mainstreamy nights like I don't know the bear cat or the you know or jonglers not that I've done a lot of those gigs I did a few of them was like oh this is horrible
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I um I agree and like I there's um a good one in in Manchester which is uh Barking Tales Harriet Dyer does it's like a a mental health night And they it's just very specific, those places that have a very specific kind of um, niche that you can
1: yes, and what's the one in London that um is it James Ross does it's quantum, oh, quantum leopard? Quantum
0: leopard, yeah.
1: Yeah, not been there for a while, but that has a nice feel, doesn't it? Sort of nights like that.
0: Yeah. So you can sort of play with things a bit better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So I think we, we're coming up to our time, unfortunately. Oh, God, we are. Yeah. Uh, which has gone very oh, quickly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so where where can people find you? What are you doing? Tell us about your book. Tell us about your podcast.
1: Yes. Well, I'm on Twitter at Rosie Willby and on Instagram at Breakup Monologues. And that is the name of my book and podcast. So if you... Go on to any of your favourite podcast platforms and look for the breakup monologues. You can hear myself and guests often recorded at live shows. Uh, talking about relationships and love and heartbreak and funny stories about when it all goes wrong, and sometimes some insights into the real psychology about what to do when it all goes <laughs> wrong and how we can best help ourselves to recover, find a way forward. There's a really fabulous episode that we recorded recently at Brighton Fringe in Brighton's Beagle tent with about sort of 200 people or so, and Zoe Lyons and Hal Cruttenden were guesting along with a lovely broadcaster friend of mine called Bebe Lynch. Um, and Bibi and Hal had a sort of mini relationship um, from <laughs> flirting to deciding they were going to be married to then decided they were divorced, you know, all in front of the audience's eyes, <laughs> which was really <laughs> fun. <laughs> so that's definitely. Worth a listen and also the breakup monologues is now a book published by Bloomsbury in a lovely hardback, also a Kindle and audiobook narrated by me. So you can get that on all the usual bookie places, Amazon Waterstones, etc. etc. But if you do follow me on Twitter, the sort of my pinned tweet has a link. To all the places you can get that, and yeah, it'd be amazing if people did check that out. And I'm, I'm really sort of open to hearing from people about their breakup stories, or if they got anything from the book or the podcast, or if they had any kind of comments about about breakups and interesting things that have come out for them.
0: Yeah, amazing. I will look out for that and try and give it a read because I'm uh, very interested. It's in the subject matter. Um, uh, well, but, uh, what I would say as well is that it is
1: as much as it's a book about breakups. It is also the main narrative is about me trying to stay in a relationship. Finally, having learnt from my breakups, so sometimes I meet people who are in couples who say, "Oh, I better not take a book about breakups home because my partner will think I'm trying to break up with them." And I'm like, <laughs> "Well, no, actually." it's really about trying to finally navigate staying together and mm. sort of trying to understand the sort of what I call the claustrophobia of companionship. Cause it is hard like being together and living together and trying to share that domestic space with somebody and trying to still be kind of sexy and into each other. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, you, you have to be honest about the ups and downs of that and the challenges of that. And I do think that learning from your sort of past (laughs) failed relationships, or maybe we shouldn't say they're failed. We should say they're great successes at at learning and healing, you know, because maybe they were fun for a time and, and then ended. And maybe we're still friends with those people and have positive ongoing connections. But I do think, yeah, we can learn so much and then take that forward into relationships and, and maybe even stay together so it's not just about breakups you know if you want to actually stay with somebody you might even learn something about that too
0: although I can see why if your partner did bring home a book at <laughs> <laughs> that time yeah, you'd be like hold I on know. a minute do we need uh, to have a chat <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true and especially if they brought it home with my first book as well because at some of my gigs I sell like the two books together in a sort of double book bundle you can get you know a special offer Um, and the first book is called Is Monogamy Dead you know which (laughs) if if you brought the two home together that would be quite a statement wouldn't it that's like
0: are you cheating on me (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: yeah but you know all that said if you have got a romantic anniversary coming up (laughs)
0: perfect gift (laughs) ideal well thank you so much uh, for being on here it's been a pleasure um i oh yes before i oh, go uh, uh, yes. i'm doing i oxford comedy festival on on uh, this saturday uh, at Ooh. James street tavern so if, if you want to come please come uh, if you don't want to come then please don't um we <laughs> do, we don't want you there uh <laughs> oh, the show is called scream inside your heart Uh, And it's about dating. So go go a little bit of crossover there. Um, Yeah. Although not quite as informed as your (laughs) show (laughs) sounds to me. Oh, well. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, Thank you for listening. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.